0: But first, I want to reintroduce you to a couple of young women who are currently making their names in the world of STEM. Carly Noon is a Kamilaroi astrophysicist and science communicator, currently undertaking her PhD. And Crystal DiNapoli is a Kamilaroi astrophysicist and educator who's about to complete an honours degree. Now, together, they've written a bute book, Called Sky Country, which introduces us to the night skies through the lens of indigenous astronomy. And it also makes a compelling case for preserving and sharing the knowledge of the world's first astronomers. And Crystal and Carly are both fellow broadcasters. Crystal hosts the Indigenuity show on Melbourne community radio station Triple R, and Carly is the co host. Of the ABC RN podcast, Cosmic Vertigo, and I welcome them to our little wireless program. You start with the, the book with your personal stories. Crystal, you say you can pinpoint the moment when your fascination with the night sky began. Let's begin by you sharing that story with us.
1: Yeah, so uh, the story is that... Um back where I grew up, which is pangarang country in northeast Victoria, Uh, there was this one night where I was lying with my mum and my older sister on a trampoline. And my sister was just infuriating me beyond belief because she just kept apparently seeing a shooting star after a shooting star after a shooting star. (laughs) And and I struggled. I tried to to see what she could see. I couldn't. And my mum started helping me. And it was interesting because it was the first time I'd heard properly about the different features like the different constellations in the sky and the story ends with I still didn't see anything but at least it it sort of sparked that curiosity for me because I was like well now I need to see it I need to find a way.
0: How odd that it begins not with a telescope but a trampoline. (laughs) (laughs) You describe your childhood as turbulent tell us some of the challenges you faced in well getting where you are today.
1: Yeah so um, I had a I use Turbulent because I think it's sort of like a nice way of sugarcoating a a, a pretty difficult sort of like upbringing. Um, I didn't have uh, easy access to school, especially um, back when I was in primary school. If I wanted to get to school, I'd have to walk uh, like five kilometers um, from my, my side of town to get to where I studied. And so um, there were a number of things that made accessing school, like being in attendance, learning, being able to do homework and that sort of stuff that just made it really impossible for me. And it's sort of been a a running theme that continued up through high school.
0: You write that much of your life was based on survival rather than the everyday concerns of a young child.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, I feel like I had more of like a a parenting role for all of my many siblings. (laughs) So um, not the normal stuff that a kid would occupy themselves with, but, uh, yeah, needing to sort of be almost like a caretaker at a young age and growing up that way. So. Yeah, different challenges, I think, to probably the norm.
0: Well, you managed to finish high school and became the first member of your family to go to uni.
1: Yeah, it's a, um, it's a, been a, a crazy journey. I never really thought that I would be able to get to uni or get get a job or anything, and um, it's just been such an excellent experience. And I know that my siblings have really looked towards me Um as an example as well, which has been, I think, probably the most rewarding thing out of anything that I've achieved so far is watching how um, we've all sort of come full, like through everything together.
0: It's sad, isn't it, that your mum died not long after you uh, started your tertiary education. It must grieve you that you can't share the knowledge of one.
1: Yeah, I, especially like losing my mum and being able to tie back the start of my curiosity with the skies to that very moment with her. And her continued interest in it growing up, um, it is. A, it does feel somewhat ironic to be in a position now where I know so many things. I've been able to uh, share so many different platforms to discuss these things, and it's stuff that, uh, yeah, she'll ne- she'll never know, which is a bit tough for me.
0: Before I uh, I turn to uh, to Carly, then I have to ask you this: Why did you want to include your story in the book?
1: So I think it's really important to highlight that these types of hurdles can be quite common for a number of kids out in Australia. And quite often I feel like we are the forgotten children in the way that if I'm not, say, successful enough to land a book deal <laughs> and be able to tell you my story, um, you know, odds are it's it's quite easy to sort of sweep these, these experiences under the rug. And so I just want to raise awareness that there are a lot of kids who are uh, full of um, potential and in- interest and uh, could really be the next leaders of tomorrow, but are experiencing these type of hurdles.
0: I guess your story is permeated by difficulties with racism.
1: Yeah, I think people sort of miss... I, like, I have the privilege of being white passing, and so for me um, there are experiences that I don't have that others definitely do, but I think the uh, notion of intergenerational trauma is something that's not understood by the Australian public pretty well. I know a lot of people, uh, when we sort of talk about a lot of the issues and these cycles of hardship that exist in Aboriginal communities, people tend to sort of uh, brush it off as though, well, colonisation happened ages ago, stolen generation happened ages ago. These are things of the past. But what's really important to notice is that these, like my, my pop was removed, he then raised my mum, who then raised me. These issues aren't far removed. It is something that um, it takes a couple generations, I feel, to find your footing.
0: Well, my wife is one of the stolen generation and the, uh, and the pains still reverberate. Now, let me go to, uh, to you, Carly Noon. You, you grew up in, of all places, the country music capital of Australia, Tamworth.
2: Absolutely. My hometown, shout out to Tamworth. I absolutely love, uh, love my home, love my country. And yeah, it was, uh, you know, similar to Crystal. It, you know turbulence great word very much up and down had some really beautiful moments there growing up in my community in cold uh but of course you know as already touched on things like systemic racism intergenerational trauma and just the impacts you know the, the many many impacts of colonization in general um you know they're always hiding hiding somewhere or often in plain sight
0: well, you, in contrast to uh, to Crystal, Carly, you were lucky to receive an Aboriginal education from preschool.
2: Absolutely. And that is uh, something that I still hold really close to me today. Uh, I don't think, uh, you know, like a lot of, uh, you know, other uh, millennials, my memory isn't the greatest. But, uh, you know, the. The times I had at preschool and going into primary school as well, you know, we had um, we have quite a high indigenous population in Tamworth. Uh, and so, you know, my education early on was was very much steeped in culture. Um and you know, I had all of these wonderful Aboriginal leaders around me as well.
0: Now, Crystal tells us that her uh, new life began on a trampoline. What's your what's your <laughs> excuse? When did you discover <laughs> you had this thing for mathematics? Ah. Uh. Oh,
2: it was quite young, I think. Uh, you know, similar to, to Crystal, I had a lot of barriers as well getting to school. And, um, you know, this is really common, a common experience for a lot of Indigenous kids. Um, and also a lot of, uh, you know, people experiencing severe poverty as well. Uh, and so I I was really disengaged. I didn't often go to school. Uh, and my mum and my grandma, um, bless them, they picked up on this really early and they were they knew that, you know, They didn't want to keep seeing this cycle happen of, you know, not getting education and they they really tried to to help me engage in schooling and the way they did that. But there were
0: problems, weren't there, because you left school at 13 and in a sense became an autodidact. You taught yourself for three years.
2: And, and I was able to do that because quite early on, I was my, – my grandmother introduced me to this this elder, um, this Aboriginal elder in our community. She lived just behind my grandma and, you know, she was the only person we knew who had gone to uni. Uh, she had this awesome life and this awesome career. Uh, and so she would come over and she would – true uh, to me. She would teach me maths and teach me English. And I fell in love with maths. It was the first time I had really, you know, I've really been seen by anyone. Um, and so for her to believe in me and for her to help me, it gave me a huge sense of pride and also capability. And yeah, I learned really early that actually I, don't, I could teach myself.
0: Carly, you did have a trampoline and it was Stephen <laughs> Hawkins' A Brief History of Time.
2: Absolutely. So that came a lot, a lot later. Uh, You know, I fell in in love with Massa maybe around year two, year three. Stephen Hawking, that didn't come for for quite a number of years later when I was about 19. And uh, I had entered into university and, you know, I had so much hope and was so excited by, you know, the prospect that I got to go to university. And, uh, you know, I picked up this book and absolutely fell in love with cosmology and, you know, the Universe and black holes and all these things that I'd never, I'd never known about before. And the thing that got me there was, you know, fantastic science communication.
0: You, you're aware of the fact that it was one of the best-selling books of its era, but oh. as Hawking himself knew, very few people read it or understood it. I'm in that latter category. I found it absolutely incomprehensible. So I'm very, oh. I'm very impressed with you.
2: Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, uh, I I hope that you didn't take that too personally <laughs> at, at my stage where I was at. I actually to be fair, there were parts of it that I definitely had to reread a few times. But, you know, I think his passion definitely came through that book and, and kind of kept me going, you know, gave me the motivation to go and do those those Google searches.
0: Being light skinned, did you experience racism directly?
2: Yeah, it's this really funny thing. Um, you know, growing up in my community, no, not really. Um, you know, externally, for sure, you know, uh, from, from people on the other side of the tracks, uh, you know, all the time. But it was uh, it was kind of softened by the fact that I did have that community. And I know that this is going to be very, very different for, for different people. But, you know, the fact that I was accepted within my community, I think, made that racism a little bit, less harmful to, to me personally, um, as opposed to, you know, people who sadly have to experience this type of direct racism every day because of their skin color. Um, yeah, so it, it, it did happen directly. Um, but now that I'm a little bit older, uh, and you know, I still have my community, it's, um, it gets washed out.
0: (laughs) I'm talking to uh, Carly and Crystal. This is LNL on RN, Crystal DiNapoli and Carly Noon, astronomers and now co-authors of uh, the book I'm holding up to the microphone so you can all see it, Astronomy, Sky Country. It's the latest instalment of Thames and Hudson's First Knowledge series. Now it's time to talk to astronomy, which is at the heart of the book. Carly, you write that it's impossible to learn about Indigenous astronomy without learning how the sky relates to land. So can you please explain to the ancient broadcaster something of this interconnectedness?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I would love to. This is actually one of uh, my favourite aspects of, you know, our knowledge systems is the fact that they're so multifaceted. And I think, you know, we, we... all often hear the term holistic being used with respect to Indigenous culture. Uh, And, you know, essentially what that means is uh, that things things are connected thing you know knowledge doesn't sit uh siloed like it does say in the western system the, the you know the system that we're all very very much accustomed to uh you know where you go to school and you have uh broken off categories so you know you have math you have science you have uh, physics over there you have the art students over there whereas indigenous knowledge is is kind of the opposite everything is is really uh interrelated and so you know what are the main observations that Indigenous people know to be true is that this world is relational uh, and and essentially, you know, things, um, your actions can impact other things, you know. We don't live in this uh, boxed kind of environment um, like, you know, our houses kind of make us believe that, um, you know, Indigenous people recognise that actually, you know, in particular what's happening up in the sky that affects us down here. And not only does it affect us as, as humans, you know, living here, but it also affects the, the animals, the the uh, plant species, uh, the waters, the fish. You know, it, it has all of these uh, multiple
0: impacts. We'll circle back to that a little later. But in the book, you point out that in many nations' dreaming traditions, the land and sky were originally one and then... The universe was whole and then ripped in two. So in a sense, the divisions mean that the land and skies are still interlinked.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it is the dreaming that connects us to that, you know, it is our stories and our songlines, which ultimately hold all of our our knowledge. Uh, And so when we, when we do talk about, um, you know, our oral traditions, that is our gateway uh, to the sky, to our ancestral beings that live in the sky to the places that we, um, you know, are sacred to us that, again, are in, in the sky country um, and, you know, our creator beings. And so the dreaming and, and the jukbar, which um, a word that they use for the dreaming in uh, Central central Desert Way, you know, these are the ways in which we're able to connect to that place.
0: Carly, we should point out that the knowledge varies from country to country, so there's only so much that, can be shared and put into written words.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really, really great point. And and that's the same for us as well. And we do make that point in the book. You know, we are two young, you know, Gamilaroi women we don't hold all the knowledge and that's really common for 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 most nations you know there's a lot of (laughs) there's a lot going on out there uh and there's a lot to observe and there's a lot that has been observed and so you know the beauty of community is that that knowledge it can be broken up and shared amongst uh you know the different people within the community with you know different members being responsible for different pieces of knowledge
0: I understand that the Arante people of Central Australia have devised a star classification system that groups red, white, blue and yellow stars.
2: Yeah, and it's just phenomenal. You know, when I was learning about stars in fourth year uh, university um You know, this is this is postgraduate work and I was learning all about star classification systems. But this was something I had already been quite familiar with, learning from the Central Desert people and learning about how, you know, they're able to break up the sky based off the colours, but then uh, how that relates to their kinship systems as well. You know, this is the original star classification system. uh, And I just I had to have a little giggle to myself in, uh, in fourth year university learning all about it.
0: It seems only yesterday that uh, right-wing bigots were mocking the very idea of Indigenous science, so at least we're moving in the right direction. Back to you, Crystal. Tell us the story of the dark emu and how it illustrates this connection between up there and down here.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I love the tradition of the dark emu for many different reasons, One of the main ones being that I do think it represents the idea of interconnectedness really well. So for anyone who's unfamiliar, the Dark Emu is a dark sky constellation. So it's not a constellation that is uh, probably what people are used to in that uh, Western sense of having bright stars linked together to create some sort of shape in the sky. But instead, it is actually something that we find in our dark regions of the sky. And so in the Southern Hemisphere, we are tilted in such a way that we get a very beautiful view of our, our Milky Way, of um, our own galaxy up in the sky. And it is that sort of rip that we see that, you know, you're just talking about in um, referencing those dreaming traditions. And so uh, within this shape there, within this uh, region of the Milky Way, there is the shape of the emu. And for the Gamilaray, we refer to it as uh, Garage, which is also this is essentially the emu on the sky. Um, and it has a strong link to the emu on the ground, which is the dinner one. And what's important to note is that the emu means different things for many different communities. So for me and Kali, our mob, tend to have a very um, loving connection to the emu. Uh, it's a totem. Um, there's a great respect for the emu. And it's a very key uh, food source. For other communities, it's it's quite the opposite. <laughs> the Burong Sea, uh, the emu is this human eating goliath named Chingle. Um, but in the Gamilarae tradition, uh, the orientation of the emu throughout the year is actually used as a calendar to tell us about predominantly the emu egg cycle, as well as changes in our environment, uh, the conditions, the seasons throughout the year, and our water sources. So it's it's a beautiful tale.
0: Crystal, can you describe how the dark emu looks in the sky as it changes through the year? Because that in itself is quite remarkable.
1: Yeah, so uh, the emu's head is found at a thing that's called the Colsac Nebula. Um, And we have, I guess, I'd say three to four key stages throughout the year for the emu. So we sort of start when we talk about the emu, um, talking about when we're in autumn, we look after sunset for where the emu is in the sky. And so we're looking to see where the Milky Way is. And what we'll find is that the head of the emu and its beak appear to be pointing up into the sky. And it is said to be a female emu referring to the emu on the ground, who is up and running for a mate. So when we see the emu running in the sky, we know that the Dinawan, the emu of the ground, is also running and she's trying to find her partner. Then as we move into the winter, our skies start to shift. And if we go out at sunset, we're going to see that the emu is actually now uh, pointed downwards towards the earth. And this is said to be the male emu, who is now hopping down to roost over the eggs, the gawu, incubating them and uh, keeping them warm through the winter which is around the time of year that we start to see chicks forming and so this is the time of year where you'd know that um previously having collected the emu eggs you would be stopping around this point uh and then another key stage is when we get to summer and so if you're looking for the emu in the sky around summer you're heading out after sunset you what you're going to see is uh, what looks to be the the body of the emu sort of poking out from the from the ground but it's, it's actually the head, but that's fine. <laughs> and uh, this is uh, said to be the emu uh, lowering itself down into the waterhole of the horizon, and it's just a descriptor for that time of year in summer where it's quite dry and hot.
0: Carly, back to you. I, I was absolutely enthralled by the, the Seven Sisters exhibition, and we talked about it on the program, about how the songlines that form corridors of knowledge across Australia, how important are the night skies when it comes to songlines?
2: Yeah, they're incredibly important uh, for for a number of reasons. I had already touched on uh, how knowledge can often be broken up and, uh, you know, different kinship groups um, or different families within one community can be responsible for different parts of, um, you know, a a, a bigger part of knowledge. And this is often done with um, songlines. You know, songlines are are huge sagas. Um, They... Encompass huge amounts of knowledge that you know. As we just heard from Crystal with the the, the dinner one, the emu, the celestial emu. Uh, you know, they they comprise lots of different parts of information about what it's like living on country and the different things that you need to do that. The Seven Sisters song line that, you know, you're referring to, the song line that goes from uh, Central Desert to west coast of Australia and to the south as well, you know, this covers thousands of kilometres. Uh, and so, you know, not only is this song line broken up into bits of knowledge within uh, individual communities, but it's actually broken up across multiple, different nations uh, with each nation you know kind of holding and responsible for their their own piece of that that tale and what this does is you know not only can uh, can you embed huge amounts of information uh, but it also acts as say a type of passport. So it's not often that people will have to travel to other people's country, but there are occasions where this is necessary, um, you know, for things like trading, for things like collecting resources, and then just things for cultural responsibility. You know, you may need to go to a particular site um, to fulfil your custodian roles. And so the beautiful thing about, about this shared song line is that, If you can share that with your neighbouring community, then they know that you're on important duties. You know, you have a responsibility to that song line and you have a right to be transiting their country, essentially.
0: Carly, you talk about uh, song lines and astronomical highways,
2: Yes, there are these beautiful things called uh, star maps. Uh, and Uncle Gila, who is a Camillary and Yulei elder, uh, he talks beautifully about this. And he shares his knowledge about how the Yuliae people could travel using the stars and essentially what they would do, very similar to, uh, you know, the Western constellations where you kind of connect connect the points of light, connect the stars. That's very much how star maps are viewed and used. So one star could represent a particular land formation or feature. Uh, And then from that star uh, or that feature – um, you know, the constellation shows you the next uh, direction that you need to be going in uh, and kind of tells you the next feature that you should be looking out for. Now, this is uh, obviously useful for navigating often nighttime, but there are other uses of star maps as well. The Waterman people in Northern Territory, they use a very different system. Um, they don't necessarily use the star maps as directional guides, but Kind of similar to how the song lines are used, you know, information can be embedded into particular stars, uh, and different features in the night sky can hold different meaning uh, depending on what you're you're trying to achieve, whether that's navigation or not. But very similarly, uh, in Northern Territory, they they also were a fan of the the nighttime travelling. Uh, they would say that time time goes faster off at nighttime. Uh and obviously, you know, they're dealing with much greater heat uh, up there, up that wave. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a really interesting use of the night sky.
0: Crystal, it's very difficult, of course, to date oral traditions, but it's starting to become possible to get a sense of just how old some of these stories are. Can you tell us how this works?
1: Yeah, so when it comes to oral traditions, uh, there are a number of different ways where we can get estimates for the longevity of them. So I I wanted to include a number of different examples of the type of timelines in the book just to open everyone's eyes to how rich this astronomy is and how it really is the world's first examples of astronomy. Uh, For example, um, we uh, wrote about one tradition (laughs) relating to uh, fire falling from the sky in, I think, near Lurija community. Uh, And they were talking about how um, there are these essentially these craters that are being that are left in the ground. And it's a remnant from when a fire devil in their dreaming uh, came along and scorched the earth uh, for a reason relating to the story. A lot of these stories, which encode science, also encode moral lessons, um, taboos and everything that uh, people in society should be aware of. Uh, And so uh, when a group of scientists in the early 1900s were going out and exploring these sort of crater sites in the Henry Crater Field, uh, they were warned by community to not approach those areas. And they have this clear recollection of fire falling from the sky and the devastation that was left afterwards. And so we can then use geological evidence of actually dating those meteorite impacts those craters, to actually find out how long ago an event like that might have happened.
0: And it also makes it absolutely clear that the claim of uh, Indigenous astronomy to be the world's oldest is entirely correct.
1: Absolutely. There are so many more examples which even extend upon the uh, the bounds of Carly's and my book. Uh, recollection, description of sea level rising, of volcanic eruptions here in Victoria, uh, which dated thirty plus thousand years ago, uh, there are so many oral traditions which uh, can tell us this oral memory of stuff that has happened on this continent that uh, there is no other record of. We we have those stories, and then we can um, we can find out a lot more about those events.
0: And the seven sisters stories could be over hundred thousand years old. I'm talking to Crystal Napoli and Carly Noon, astrophysicist and co-authors of Astronomy, Sky Country, part of Thames and Hudson's First Knowledge Series. Now, we've established how ancient the knowledge is and it's currently at risk of being lost. Carly, what are some of the threats to our dark skies?
2: Yeah, so very much, you know, as we have experienced a lot of uh, land degradation um, and desecration and just you know, straight-up pollution here, uh, you know, we're experiencing the same trends when we think about our skies. Uh, now, this has been made an even more pressing issue with the introduction uh, of thousands of satellites that uh, have been injected into our skies. Particularly by
0: by Elon Musk, of
2: course. Yeah, exactly. So I, I am referring to uh, the mega-constellations, largely because of uh, Starlink and, and uh, SpaceX, uh, but there are also other companies that are contributing to this as well. And unfortunately, you know, we were already... But Musk willing- on his
0: own plans to launch another 40,000 over yeah. the next <laughs> next 10 years. And you point out that only about 100 stars are visible to the naked eye in cities and towns, compared to two to 5,000 that are visible in the country under pristine dark skies.
2: Yeah, exactly. So as we as we contribute more to this uh this overpopulation of of space and our sky, these metallic objects, you know, these satellites, they're called uh they're actually called small satellites, but uh, each of them are over two hundred kilos uh in, in weight and a couple of meters in size. And when you put a metal object up in the sky, even you know, a metal object down here on the on the ground, it scatters light. And um, you know, when you have thousands thousands, thousands of these objects uh, orbiting the entire planet, uh, you get a lot of light scatter. And what we're seeing is this new form of what they're calling sky glow. So essentially how much the sky is glowing with that scattered light. And unfortunately, with all of these thousands of of telescopes being injected into our atmosphere, we're already at a point where that level of sky glow is uh, rendering (laughs) scientific Scientific observations are pretty redundant, uh, and it gets
0: even worse. Chris, I'll go to you now, Crystal, because uh, light pollution has a terrible effect on wildlife.
1: Yeah, so uh, light pollution in general is definitely a like multidisciplinary issue. So it affects us as cultural astronomers, as astrophysicists as um, just in general, our, our wildlife as well. And so uh, I yeah wanted to include a few examples of this just to highlight once again that this light pollution is an issue that affects everyone. I just don't think we're as aware of how much of an impact it has on us. And so, for example, we have a lot of native species which are actually really sensitive to the light. Uh, for example, we have wallabies, which uh, essentially use the, the lengths of the day, so the different daylight that they're getting, in, um, to sort of prompt their breeding cycles. And so what we're seeing is with this increase of artificial light that wallaby babies are being born into a time of year where um, the right food sources aren't available. And it's because of that artificial light in their environment which signify that it's a different time of year. We have other examples as well. Um, you know, our beautiful magpies with their lovely little songs. Uh, they, unfortunately, are very sensitive to a lot of the artificial light as well, so it's disrupting their sleep. Um, and we also have a lot of species which have reliance on one another. For example, we have like the bogon moth, which are a migratory species which rely on light cues in their environment. And they are an important food source for a lot of our native species in particular a lot of our possums and so what's happening is these uh Bogon moths are being attracted to different areas rather than where they should be um complete disruptions and that's also impacting other species other mammals as well so it is a serious issue um, in general for human health for animal health and also for cultural
2: heritage
0: now carly you're calling for some uh, changes to be made
2: yeah, I think it's I think it's about time to be honest. And I think, you know, we're at a point where we've learned a lot of lessons. We've learned about the devastating impacts of, you know, actions like colonization. You know, no one knows the consequences of that more than Indigenous peoples, not just in Australia but around the world. We've had really good solid evidence for climate change for about thirty years now. Uh if not if not longer. You know, we we, we understand what we're doing and I think, you know, it's a really, really good time to be highly aware of this before we repeat those same mistakes when we look at the sky and when we think about the future of the sky.
0: Let's end by asking you both this same question. You stress that we urgently need more First Nations people and women working in the field of astronomy and STEM areas. Uh, What do you think it might take for that to occur? Carly, you first
2: Yeah, so I think, you know, uh, Crystal and myself (laughs) have put a lot of work into this and and many other people, you know, we need to see People successful in that space, and I, you know, it comes back to why we were sharing our stories. You know, it's really important for people to know the different challenges that you know women face, young girls face, um, Indigenous people, uh, you know, people of color, queer people. You know, all of these barriers that that people are facing out there that are keeping them away from accessing these fields. When actually they could be bringing incredible knowledge incredible perspectives and whole communities with them to their respective fields so uh you know it's really important to be honest about the situation that we're in uh that goes towards you know why we we try and conduct this truth telling why it's so important to be truthful about where we are the history that we've had to endure and you know how we can possibly fix (laughs) um, some of the problems we're facing.
0: Crystal, we should be adding to the school curriculum, shouldn't we?
2: Yeah, I think uh, education
1: really is the way forward in a lot of different regards. And seeing introductions of Indigenous science and a better focus (laughs) and a more accurate focus on Indigenous knowledge in general into primary school curriculums, high school curriculums, and now also at a tertiary university level. I feel like with a more educated public who has a better understanding of Aboriginal people, that is our best way forward with uh, hoping for any type of proper reconciliation.
0: The koala is my totemic animal and I occasionally give guests koala stamp awards and both of you thoroughly deserve a koala stamp. So <laughs> thank you very much. First to you, Crystal DiNapoli, and you, Carly Noon, astrophysicist and the co-authors of uh, Astronomy Sky Country, published by Thames and Hudson. Think bigger about the world we live in.